If you're a guest with us, we have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark in a series that we've called Expectancy. And as our hearts are filled with an expectancy and a desire just to know Christ more and to be more like Christ. Looking with me in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, in, in just a moment we will read this together. But I would imagine that most individuals here at some point, whether you're a fan of this type of television show or not, that at some point you have, uh, you've watched and you've seen uh, a, a reality show, some sort of reality show or even a snippet of a reality show. And if you're not familiar with a reality show, I think most people are, but a reality show is one where, where they take a camera crew and they go and they set up shop. Sometimes it's in a person's home. Sometimes it's in a workplace, uh, in a number of settings, sometimes in a house with a family any number of settings, and then they just let the cameras roll, and they'll film them for a number of weeks and create a number of episodes, and it really doesn't matter what type of show you're watching. At some point, when it involves a family or it involves a work situation or a workplace, there's always one or two individuals that are just kind of the quirky ones of the bunch. And I think quirky might be maybe a soft way of saying it. They're the oddball. They're a little bit different. They're unique. They're challenging. And, and they really bring an interesting twist to that entire family, to that entire dynamic. Here's what I'm talking about. You've seen those ones. And when I watch those shows, and, I, and not that I, I watch many of them, but the ones that I've seen, I've watched. And, and when I see that individual, those one or two individuals that are just completely out there, that, that they just don't make sense. You're like, how can you process or think like that? Then I look at that and I think, can this be real? Is this, is this really real? Or is this reality television? Or is this person staged or a part of that? And we look at that and say, is that even possible? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a family in Scripture that if you could take a camera and insert it into someone's home and in someone's life and really to get a picture of their family, you would walk away scratching your head thinking, are there really people like that out there? A very interesting family and a very interesting dynamic. So let's begin to look at this story as we, we read and as we look at this. I'm going to stop midway through a couple of verses and give you some details that I believe will, will help in better understanding the story as we read it. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that there's only two places in the entire Gospel of Mark that is, the story is not centered completely on Jesus. Mark's point in the gospel of Mark is to get our focus upon Jesus, to be completely focused upon him. And there's only two places in the entire story that there's someone else that the story is focused on. And one is found in Mark chapter one, and the other one is found here. And the story in the, both of those places is, is focused on John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, if you're not familiar with him, was a forerunner. He went before Jesus and he declared a message of repentance and declared a message to turn hearts towards God. And ultimately, John's, John's purpose and his focus was to point towards Jesus, much like the Gospel of Mark does. And so I want you to look with me at this story as it, as it really highlights an event, a significant event in the life of John the Baptist. Says King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. 
But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So not only, just to pause for a moment, not only is this story about John the Baptist, but it's also a flashback. It's looking back, it's explaining verse 16, where, where Herod says, is this John, is Jesus, John the Baptist, the person I've beheaded? Is this Jesus come alive again? So the whole story is a flashback to look back and to see what's happened. If you look earlier in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, you'll see that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Herod arrests John the Baptist and puts him in prison. So John's been in prison for about a year. And it says that while he's in prison, verse 14 says that Jesus' name had become known. John the Baptist heard about him and Jesus' name had become known known. And as it speaks of Jesus's name being known, not so much just speaking of popularity, but speaking of the authority and the way in which he was teaching and the power with which he, he demonstrated and the miracles that were taking place. So much so that, that Herod was looking back and thinking, is, is this perhaps John the Baptist resurrected? I thought I executed John the Baptist. Is this him once again? And when it speaks of his, of the name of Jesus being well known, I think it really gives us a clear picture what uh, Colossians chapter one, verse six says. Colossians one, verse, chapter one, verse six says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all throughout the world, just as it has been doing in our lives. Makes it very clear that even though Herod takes John the Baptist and chains him up and puts him in prison, that it doesn't stop the advancement of the gospel. That the gospel is ever expanding, the impact of the gospel is ever, and the influence is ever expanding and impacting hearts and lives. It doesn't matter if, if John the Baptist, the messenger, is put in prison, the gospel's still going out. That Jesus is still making a difference. And I think at this point in the story, it's something for you and I to stop and to think about. What is the influence and the impact of the gospel on my life in a daily basis? That there should be a daily impact of the gospel in your life and in my life. That it's not a matter of just a story we read and, or something we come together for at church on a Sunday and then we move on from. There's a daily impact of the gospel upon our hearts and upon our lives. In fact, if the, the gospel, the story of Jesus, when you look in scripture, if it's not having an impact on your life, then we need to take time to look and see what's happening in my heart. And we will see that with Herod in just a moment. Looking on with me in verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Now I need to pause the story again for just a moment. And this is where this family tree begins to take a very interesting twist. This is where the place where if there was reality TV today, that they would come and insert the camera into the story and go to the wide angle lens to capture as many details as possible. If you read through the New Testament, when you look in the New Testament, you'll see that there's a few different times in the New Testament where a man by the name of Herod surfaces. The first time we really see is back at the beginning of Jesus's birth. We have a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a ruler that was installed by the government, by the, by the emperor into the Israelite region, into Jerusalem. And he was really a puppet ruler. His role was to keep peace, to oversee the area, to oversee the region. When he died, he, Herod had four sons. And when he died, the Roman Empire took the small little region that he was entrusted with overseeing and divided it into four parts, giving his son a quarter of the small region that Herod had been given to oversee. 
Now, it would be the way of thinking is that if you had a, I was trying to think of, a, of an example to help you get the picture of this, because you have this in, incredibly powerful Roman Empire, and you have a very small region that Herod the Great's been given authority over, or not really even authority, but a sense of being a peacekeeper. And then when he dies, he takes his four sons, and it's his, his, his region is divided into four categories, so sliced into four different sections, and then given to the sons to be a peacekeeper. And all the while, his four sons thought that they had this great power and great authority. We'll see with Herod uh, Antipas in just a moment. But a picture to help you get get to understand just how small of an influence these men really were, as much as they thought otherwise about themselves. If you were to take a millionaire, and he were to entrust you with a dollar, and ask you to watch his dollar... And then when, he, when you pass away, he says, I'm going to take your dollar and I'm going to divide it into four quarters and give it to each of your children and ask them to oversee that quarter of my, of my estate. You follow what I'm saying? Very small influence over a very large region, really not much of a, a region at all they were given. It was more of a thorn in the flesh to the Roman Empire at this time. But you have these four men who have been entrusted with giving leadership or peacekeeping uh, authority over this region. Of Herod's four sons, he had one son whose name was Artibulus. Artibulus had a daughter whose name was Herodias, the one we're going to read about in just a moment. So Artibulus had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias's uncle fell in love with her and married her. And then Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, the one in the story, Tetrarch means fourth of a ruler, Herod, the, his, her other uncle, seduced her away from his brother and married her as well. So you see a little bit of the twisting and turning that's taking place in the story. There's a diagram that's on the screen that should help you get a little bit of a picture of where the twists and turns take place in this family tree. So Herod the Tetrarch, to help you understand the Herod in the story, Herod is a man who is married to his sister-in-law, who is his niece, all at the same time. Makes perfect sense now, doesn't it? And these are the men who are in charge. And they're not really even in charge. They just want people to think they're in charge. In fact, Herod goes around telling people to tell, call him king, which is what Mark writes of just to help classify the individual specifically that we're talking about. So let's read on. Verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we're going to keep reading, but just to pause for a moment. Notice what, what is written by what is not being written. John never calls Herodias. He never, he never says Herodias is Herod's wife. He says he's still the other man's wife. And that's a reminder that to you and me, it doesn't matter what we want to call it. Sin in God's eyes is still sin. It doesn't matter what perspective we try to put on it, what spin we try to put on it. If we might try, might try to make it sound like it's culturally acceptable and relevant today, that it makes me feel good, it makes me feel pleasured, whatever you want to call it, sin is still sin in God's eyes, and John is calling it like it is. In verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a great banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And just to pause there for a moment, remember, this is a man without any real authority and any real power, but yet he's trying to give the picture of having authority and power. So he gathers all of the nobles from the land around to be and there to celebrate his birthday. 
Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias came in, so a princess came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And just to pause there for a moment, just again to give you a picture and understanding this family. The dance that she did would have been very sensual. It would have been very suggestive. It was not a dance that was ever done by a princess. It was not a dance to be done by royalty. It was a dance that would have been expected from a slave being used as a form of entertainment. And that really shows just the depravity of this family. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Sounds really big, but in a sense, he's saying, I'll give you half of everything that I have, which is nothing. I'll give you half of nothing. You understand? Again, this man has this idea of everything that he has, but really does not. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. And with that, we have the the death of the final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And in the midst of this twisted, distorted family that we have looked at, their drama, their claim to fame, even their deception and trickery among each other, there's another story tucked away in this story that I want you to see for a little bit. Another story that I think you and I can learn a bit from, and that is, I want you to look with me in verse 19, the last half of verse 19 and verse 20. It says, but she was not able to, it's speaking of Herodias nursing this grudge against John calling out the sin that she's living in day after day with a man who's not her husband. It says she nursed a grudge. She nursed a grudge. It says, but she was not able to kill him because Herod feared John and protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The story tucked within the story is the story of Herod's conscience, a guilty conscience that is constantly nagging and conflicted on what is the right thing to do, the right way to go, the right response to have. In the verse we've just looked at, verse 20, and I'm just going to ask if you men could even leave that on the screen for me for a little bit. Verse 20, if you look at verse 20, you'll see it says that, it says that Herod feared John. It says that he, John, he feared John and protected him. In Matthew's account of the same story, it says that not only did Herodias want to kill John, but it said that Herod wanted to kill John. But yet here it says that he protected him. He feared him and he protected him. When we, when we speak of, of Herod fearing John, we don't think so much of living in terror or living in fright of, of, of John, but rather it's more of what we see in the, in the Bible when it talks about the fear of the Lord. It speaks of a reverence and, and an awe of who he is. It speaks of not living in terror, but living with reverence and a holiness before him. Herod had a great reverence and respect for John because he knew John was a righteous and holy man. He was a man who lived differently. In fact, when we look in the story, when we look at John's life, we see that John is a man who is untouched and untainted by all the things that Herod can't escape from. He's a complete opposite of everything that Herod is. Herod can't make up his own mind. John freely speaks his mind, even though he's bound in shackles and in prison. 
Herod longs for attention and popularity and has to force it from his subjects, yet John is content living in the desert and living on next to nothing, yet people flock to hear him and to have his voice weigh in on their life. Herod wants power and authority. John speaks with power and authority. John kept calling out the sin of Herod's marriage, kept calling out the sin of Herodias, and he kept calling it out so much so that it said that Herod wanted him dead, yet he still protected him. He still restrained his wife from executing him. What I see in the story with Herod is this wanting to kill him, but protecting him, this fearing him and listening to him, is a story of a conflicted heart. A story of a conscience that that is nagging and gnawing and trying to bring a man to a point of repentance. Look in verse 20 once again. Verse 20, it says that he was greatly puzzled and yet he liked to listen to him. It says he liked to listen to John. John's message was not light. John's message was not comfortable. John's message was anything but fluffy. If you look earlier in the story we've just read, John has no fear standing before the appointed authority in that day and calling out sin in his life. He has no fear of death, no fear of man. He has no fear of speaking what is on his mind and what the Holy Spirit has put before him to any audience that will listen. If you look in, in Matthew's gospel, when it comes to John, we'll see another sampling of the message that he brings. And he has the religious leaders and the religious authorities of the day coming to him. And in that day, when they come to him, John calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them a, a brood of vipers, a pit of vipers, a nest of vipers. His message isn't light and his message is not fluffy. His message is not a feel-good message. But yet, it says that Herod liked to listen to him. In fact, you have to keep in mind and picture the way everything was laid out in, in Herod's chamber and in Herod's, in Herod's uh, his palace. John did not sit next to Herod. John was not in the same room next to Herod, was likely not even in the same building with Herod. He was kept in a dungeon, kept in a prison somewhere else. So it wasn't like John just had an audience with Herod whenever he wanted an audience with Herod. If Herod wanted to hear John, he had to send a guard to get John, to get him out of his prison, to put him in chains, to bring him before Herod, and then have him appear there. It wasn't a small process. It wasn't a matter of John just walking through the chamber doors one day and saying, Hi, Herod, I've got a message for you. Herod had to continually send for John. It said that he liked to listen to John. He likes to listen to his message. We get a sense of him listening to this message and that he is... He is drawn to the truth. Herod is drawn to hearing the truth that's being presented again and again. And I think each time when John comes before Herod and stands before Herod and stands before their Herod with all of his, his greatness and all of his picture of royalty and everything that he's trying to present, uh, present himself to be, and John's standing there in chains and in shackles with the guards next to him, and Herod stands there and, and John comes before him and he says, John, you remember the thing you were telling me last time? I want you to tell me again. Tell me again what it is that you were talking about. And John begins to point out to him about the sin that he's living in, about the compromise that's there, begins to lay truth in front of him again and again. And I believe that each time Herod considers what he needs to do, he considers the truth of John's words. He considers the weight of the Holy Spirit's conviction in his heart in the moment. He considers the truth of Scripture that's been presented to him. He considers the weight of the choice that he has to make. And then each time he sends John away and he does nothing. He sends John away and says, I'll think about it. Perhaps there'll be another time 
Perhaps next time I'll respond to what it is that you're telling me. Perhaps next time I'll respond to the truth that you're convicting me with, the things that you're laying in front of me. And he makes the dangerous assumption that there will always be another opportunity. Herod always assumes that he can have John come again and present the truth again and listen again and that he'll always have another opportunity to be able to listen and perhaps in that moment respond to what is being said. But look in verse 20 again. Look at one more thing. Verse 20, it says that he, liked, he heard John and he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. It says he was greatly puzzled. If you have a King James Version Bible of Scripture in front of you, your version will say something like it says that he, that he did many things. Instead of saying greatly puzzled, it says Herod did many things. And that translation is a little more close to what is actually written in the, in the original language. It says he did many things. And I think when it says that Herod did many things, that's John's way of expressing the conviction that Herod was experiencing. He did many things, like a small child who is guilty, who knows he's done something wrong. He begins to fidget and fuss and wonder, what can I do? How do I get out of this weight that's pressing down in on my heart? He began to shift, and I would imagine that as John began to speak and the conviction of the Holy Spirit began to rest upon Herod, that John would sit in his throne and he'd fidget and he'd turn and he would make eye contact with John and then he'd look away and he'd make eye contact with the guards and and then he would get up and he would pace and walk back and forth. Anything to do defer the weight and the conviction that was taking place in that moment with the truth that continued to be revealed. I would imagine that in each and every moment that as John came and presented the message to Herod and confronted him with the truth, confronted him with the sin, confronted him with the need for repentance, then I would imagine that in every moment and in every place, not only was Herod weighing the cost of responding to John's command and responding to John's rebuke, He was weighing how hard it would be to respond, how good he liked what he did. I would imagine another question that was pressing in on his conscience was, what would others think of me if I responded to this message right now? Earlier in the story, we see that he's so concerned about the nobles on if he'll keep his word of offering nothing to this princess who's danced. He's so formed and shaped by the opinions of others, he can't respond in his own to the gospel, to the call of repentance that's being placed before him. I think Herod's conscience is under conviction as he wrestles with how do I respond to this message that I continually cannot get away from. I've got to hear it one more time. I hate how it makes me feel, but yet I love the hope that it promises at the same time. How do I respond to this moment? to what it is that John is presenting me with. And I want you to know something about John. Look with me in Luke chapter 1. At John's birth, his father, his dad, Zechariah, pronounces a prophetic prayer and a prophetic blessing over John. And when I think about that as you turn there, John chapter 1, verse 78, that John the Baptist's father uh, speaks this prophetic prayer and this prophetic blessing over his child, And I think it's, we'll look at it in just a moment, but I think that's a clear reminder to every parent here, to every every parent, every mom, every dad who's here in this room in this moment, that you have a child that God has entrusted you with. Your primary call, your primary role in their life is not merely to provide a roof and to provide a warm meal and to give them a good education. That God has placed you as a prophetic voice into their life 
to begin to speak truth and declare his truth, to declare warning, to declare his life to them, to be a prophetic voice, to call out to them God's purposes and his plans and his truth to them again and again. And look at this prophetic voice, this prophetic word that, that John the Baptist's father says over him in just a small part. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 78. It says, Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and to guide and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the path of peace. But he says John's message, John's life, John's heart is, is because of the tender mercy of God. He says that his message and his life as he called and as he spoke was to, was to be a voice of the tender mercies of God to those who listened. Whether or not Herod realized it, in John's rebuke to him, John was speaking the tender mercies of God to his life. John was calling out the tender mercies of God in his life. It made him uncomfortable. It dealt with sin in his life that he wanted to hang on to. But it was the mercy of God calling to him again and again and again. That in God's mercy, he was trying to rescue Herod. And he was trying to rescue him from the mess of life that living for self produces. That his tender mercy continued to call to him. And every time Herod listened and then sent John back to his prison, every time Herod listened and then rejected John, every time Herod delayed in making a decision, he was making a decision. Every time he rejected the tender mercies of God, he was making a decision to walk away. Much like those who are sitting here right now in this room, you could be sitting here and you might be a guest who's in town for the football game. You might be a regular attender who attends every week. You may have just come from a persistent neighbor or a friend who's been inviting you. Or you may be a part of the church family that, that gathers every single Sunday. Every time you hear the gospel being presented to you, it is the tender mercy of God in your life. It is the tender mercy of God calling to you, calling out to you with freedom. If you've committed your life to Christ, it's a call to know him more. It's a call to walk and be more like him. It's a call to experience the freedom that he has for you, to guard your heart from the deception of sin, from the ways of life and the ways of self. And friends, if you're here this morning and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, then his mercy is the continual pulling and conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring. It's a restlessness in your heart and it's a putting a finger on pieces of your life that are not consistent with who God has revealed himself to be. That is not consistent with the nature of Jesus Christ and the freedom and the life and the hope that he offers for each and every man. Every time the Holy Spirit is calling, every time you hear the gospel, it's the tender mercy of God drawing you into relationship, desiring relationship to him that comes through repentance and turning from sin and turning towards Christ. In John chapter 16, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and he describes the role of the Holy Spirit and he says the Holy Spirit will come to prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict you of, of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And what Jesus is telling us and what he's telling you and me through, through that declaration and through speaking that of the Holy Spirit is he's teaching and he says the role of the Holy Spirit is to show us and shape us and guide us to where we need to respond. His, the role of the Holy Spirit is to, to deal with our attitudes towards sin, to deal with righteousness. And the word that's used for righteousness when it was originally translated into the English language, it was originally translated right wiseness. 
Speaking of thinking differently about sin, thinking differently about life, choosing to turn towards God and live from God's perspective, and that only comes from the the Holy Spirit's influence in your life, a willingness to respond and allow him to shape your life. See, friends, if you're here this morning, the Holy Spirit doesn't work without us. The Holy Spirit desires to work in us and with us. He will never work without us or in spite of us. We have to respond. You have to respond to how the Holy Spirit prompts your heart. It's a responding to what he reveals and what he wants to deal with. For both the Christian and the unchristian alike this morning, the Bible makes it inescapably clear that the Holy Spirit is, wants to come and do things in our lives that is in response to our turning towards him. It's in response to what he wants to do, to push him away, to delay, to not respond, is to tell the Holy Spirit that he's wrong and that he's, what he sees need, that needs to be done in our lives is a misunderstanding. To not respond to how the Holy Spirit prompts your heart this morning would be, to, would be the same as pushing away the tender mercy and saying, God, you're wrong in that area. I don't need you in that area. I don't need you to deal with this area. I don't need you to speak to me in this area. Friends, there is great growth and great blessing in all of our lives when we learn to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting and working in our lives and when we close the gap from the time he convicts us to the time we respond. And see, oftentimes the Holy Spirit can convict us on something, whether it be wrong words or an attitude or anger or bitterness or whatever it might be that we're holding on to. But the Holy Spirit can bring that conviction. And, and the, way our, the way our human nature often works is we'll try to reason it away. We'll try to explain it away. We'll say, you know... Yeah, I may have gotten angry, but I was completely right. They were completely wrong. They didn't see it how I saw it, and I saw it the way it should be. So they're the ones who are wrong. I don't need to deal with this. And we'll just kind of tuck it away. We'll just not deal with it. We'll, we'll kind of push it aside. And the way the Holy Spirit works is he'll come back, and he'll gently begin to say, you know, you, you, you say you worship me, you say, hey, I'm raised to life, and, and, and finding grace and the, my newness of my Savior, and all these wonderful songs, but... He'll come back and he'll say, yeah, I love the fact that you love being raised to life, but you're not letting me resurrect this area. You're not letting me deal with this area, this part, this thing that I'm showing to you, I'm dealing with again and again. And as long as we let that gap stay significantly large, we will lose much opportunity for growth and response and sensitivity to how the Holy Spirit's working. But what God desires, what he desires in your life, what he desires in my life, is that we begin to close the gap from the time that he brings conviction to how we choose to respond. And if we can continue to close the gaps, the Holy Spirit brings conviction and we choose to respond. Holy Spirit brings conviction, we choose to respond. Holy Spirit brings conviction, we choose to respond. Before long, it becomes right back to back. The Holy Spirit convicts us and immediately we respond. And then I believe it works this way. As we continue to respond to the Holy Spirit's working and shaping in our lives and that gap has been closed, before long we begin to recognize not only is he convicting us and bringing us to a place of repentance by his tender mercy the moment we sin, but he's actually warning us beforehand and he's trying to prevent us beforehand. He's saying, you know that those feelings you're having, don't let them turn into action. You know those thoughts you're having, you need to put a stop to them right now because they're about to lead you to a point of sin. See, if we respond to the Holy Spirit and can continue to respond, begins to close the gap of, re- of repentance, and then it begins to move in guidance and sensitivity and a shaping and transforming of our lives. The Holy Spirit desires to work in every single heart that's here. To sit here this morning and to have the Holy Spirit bring conviction 
and to stir your conscience, whether it be with a wrong towards others or sin against God that you need to deal with or to respond in faith to Jesus Christ, to sit here and to do nothing and then to leave is the same as Herod calling for John again and again and again and then sending him away while doing nothing. But friends, Herod gives us one more lesson this morning and I'll close on this. Herod gives us one more lesson and that lesson is simply this, that all opportunities won't last. Herod thinks he's in control of his opportunities. He thinks I'll have another time. I'll call for John again. I'll bring him out again. He can call for him and send him away as much as he wants. But verse 21 says, when it comes to Herodias and this birthday party, it starts it this way. It says, finally, the opportune time came. Herodias saw her moment. She saw her opportunity to deal with John and to deal with him severely, to put him to death. And she seized it. And with the birthing of Herodias's opportunity was the death of Herod's. His opportunity was gone. John was no longer there to call for. The message was no longer there to be heard. That while, while he thought he had another day, he'd have another moment, another calling for John to come. John was now gone. The opportunities that he had so number, numerously had times before had been squandered. And now John was gone and the opportunities were lost. In fact, I find it interesting that Mark begins this whole story. We looked at it in verse 14 through 16. That it tells us that Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. He thinks Jesus is John resurrected. I think the very fact that Herod thinks that is a sign of his guilty conscience. It's a signal of his guilty conscience. He's is eating at him. He knew that he had multiple opportunities and had squandered them. He's thinking, I'm hearing of Jesus. I'm hearing his message. I'm seeing what he's doing. Perhaps, perhaps just possibly it's John. Just possibly I'll get another opportunity. I'll get another window to hear one more time his words and at that point be able to weigh and decide what to do. I think another place that shows us just the significance of what's taking place in Herod's conscience is Luke 23. And you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 23, in the closing phases of Jesus's trial before he's crucified, in Luke 23, Pilate, who's the, the, the Roman uh, governor who's has been established there, he sends Jesus away to Herod. Same Herod. Jesus goes and stands before Herod and stands before Herod's court. And it says Jesus is standing before Herod, the exact same man. And verse 9 says that Herod had longed to see Jesus. He had longed to see Jesus and to hear him. And it says that he, he asked Jesus a great deal of questions. And it says Jesus stood there and said nothing. In one moment, he can pull John and have John come and stand before him and give him message after message after message after message. And now he has God in the flesh standing before him and he doesn't even get a word. His opportunities are gone. His moment is lost. And it says that Herod begins to mock Jesus, that there's a hardness and a coldness that has settled into his spirit, that he realizes that he has squandered his opportunities he has squandered his moments and he's left with a conscience that is gnawing and nagging at him over the tender mercies of God that continued to call and were continually rejected. You know, in my early years of ministry, I wrote something in the front of my Bible. Uh, I wrote it in my first Bible that I'd had for ministry and I wrote, I've written it in this one as well. 
And it's something that always stuck with me. And it says, the opportunity of a lifetime will only last for the lifetime of the opportunity. The opportunity of a lifetime will only last for the lifetime of the opportunity. And I use that, that, that phrase that just had come, to, just thinking over it and turning it over in my heart and, and in the hard times and challenges when it was pursuing the military and raising a family and pursuing ministry and schooling and all those things and thinking it'd be a lot easier just to set ministry aside or to set this aside or this or that. And, and I just be reminded the opportunity of a lifetime only lasts for the lifetime of the opportunity. That there's a window that's presented and you only have a limited time to walk through that opportunity. And friends, the same holds true in your life. The opportunity of a lifetime will only last for the lifetime of the opportunity. You see, we often make the mistake of thinking, I have this afternoon. I have tomorrow. I have Wednesday. I have Sunday. I have any, you just fill in the blank. I have next month. I have next year. I have next Christmas. Never knowing when, like Herod, the opportunities will disappear in front of us, you'll be left with regret, with remorse, with missed opportunity. And friends, let me encourage you this morning. Don't postpone what can be done today. If the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your heart right now, respond. If he's bringing something right now to your conscience, respond. That's the tender mercy of God calling and drawing you to himself. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I want you to take inventory in your heart. Take inventory of your life. Are there things right now that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to? Are there things right now that the mercy of God is calling out to you and dealing with and exposing in your heart and mind, saying this isn't right? This is sin that needs to be dealt with. This is sin that needs to be set right. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not in relationship with Jesus Christ, do not delay. There is no greater opportunity than the one in front of you right now to call out to Jesus, to invite Jesus to come and take control of your life. Say, Jesus, I need you. I repent of my sin and I turn towards you. Sometimes with music and with so many other things that are all good things and fit and, and, and orderly in service, Sometimes in that moment, we can miss the gentle conviction and nudging of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I'm just going to ask right here in this moment, if you're here and the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart with something that needs to be dealt with, I'm going to open the front as an altar and the altar is a response. I just want to invite you to come.